Welcome back to Don't Slam Your Podcast. I am your 2.4 host, JD Collins. Today, we're going to be reviewing the episode Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, not the Albert Finney movie from 1960. Joining me today is a sitcom fanatic. It is Sitcom Stephen. Sitcom Stephen, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm all right, JD. I'm well. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. No, thank you for coming on. It's always great to meet new fans, not just of 2.4 Children, but sitcoms in general. Now, on your Twitter, you have created this account, Sitcom Stephen, specifically about sitcoms. And one of your first tweets was a brilliant picture of all your DVD box sets of all classic British sitcoms. And for me, that was like heaven. So tell me a little bit about yourself. What what do you do? What your favourite sitcoms? And what does sitcom mean to you? Well, so... Basically, I, w- I was born in the late 80s, right? I know I look older. Uh, and growing up as a child, you know, I, had, I grew up with uh, keeping up appearances, uh, Dad's Army, British Empire, 2.4, obviously. And last of the summer wine, my namesake behind me. I'm starting to look a bit like him, unfortunately. Uh, but, just to uh, say, for any, sorry, just say for anyone, because um, no one could be able to see it, there's a, 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 is it a painting of it, of Combo? Well, I'd say a painting. I printed it off on computer, but yeah, it's compo, yeah. compo, composed in a, one. in a frame behind sitcom Stephen's head. Yeah. It's great, immortalized. <laughs> but yeah, so I grew up watching them sitcoms on TV, and I think as a child, I got a lot out of it. You know, these characters like Hyacinth Bouquet, Compo, Rene Artois, they're exact. They grew. They're, dramatic exaggerations of real life people aren't they that they're the extremes so there's a lot in there for children to enjoy you know so ever since then i've loved sitcoms and been borderline obsessed with them i do like other old classic stuff like sci-fi and stuff but yes yeah, sitcoms love them you know and it's like what one chance one of the few chances you get to sit down as a family and watch something and have something you know for everybody to enjoy so a lot of these sitcoms that i've just mentioned a child can get something out of it Mum can get something out of it. Grandma can get something out of it. You know, the, the Queen Mum, her famous favourite programme was a lower low, wasn't it? One of my favourite programmes as a kid was a lower low. What's that tell you? It's the, you know, there's a, it's, it's offering something for everybody. So always enjoyed them kinds of things. Um, and then I, I was lucky enough to work in TV for a few years. Uh, worked on Pointless, um, Come Dine With Me, things like that. Never worked in comedy for some reason. I think part of me just working in TV, it's like getting on a bush, you get on it and you just, you're on the journey. And for some reason I just ended up working in entertainment, but yeah, never worked in comedy, um, which is good in a way because it's been my hobby, my interest, you know, um, my passion. It's not been the job. So yeah. And then a while ago I thought, why don't I set up my own Twitter um, and just tweet about what I, you know, I'm passionate about. And that's why sitcom Stephen was born. Yeah. Are there any DVDs that you're looking for the collection? Anyone you're missing? Well, obviously, I can't not say two point four children, can I? I mean, that is a, a giant hole in the in the in the collection. I'd like just Good Friends as well, but it's twenty four ninety nine, and I'm not yeah. paying twenty four ninety nine for three series. I'm sorry. Uh, no. So yeah, I'd like Good Goodbye, um, Come Back, Mrs. Noah. I'd like that. There's quite a few I'm after. I got in love and memory for my birthday, so I was quite happy about that. But there's this the odd gap. What I'm worried about is if I ever run out, what will I do then? Have you got any tips for me? Any anyone do you recommend, uh, JD? Um, butterflies. I'd watch that, which has a lot yeah. of similarities, actually. It's kind of like a bit of a, it's a twee 70s version of 2.4, I'd say. Yeah, definitely. I, I was um, in a previous recording, I sort of said at the same time as 2.4 Children, there were other sitcoms that were kind of mm. similar to others, but very new in the way they 
sort of to the style of irreverent humor and dark comedy so things like one foot in the grave is basically terry june and the grim reaper 2 yeah british empire is faulty towers in the 90s but anarchic and then 2.4 i said it was like butterflies so it's kind of seeing all of the good progression with comedy ab fab do you like absolutely fabulous I like Abfab. I've not delved too much into it. I've watched maybe about five, six episodes, but I will, I will get round to that one. When, yeah. when just what you were saying then about two point four, uh, sorry, British Empire being a modern day version of what was it you said it was? Modern day Faulty version? Towers. Faulty Towers. I'd say, are you being served? I'd say it's a modern oh, day yes. version of Are You Being Served? Yes. Um, yeah, but I, I yeah, never thought I of it in that way though. Them, them ninety sitcoms being, yeah. But you're right there. Yeah. I have a theory about the, the, the 90s because a lot of people, a lot of British sitcom fans always highlight the 70s and the 80s as being the best. And there's no denying that's true. But lots of people look down on the 90s. And I did a, a list a couple of days ago just thinking about all the 90s sitcoms that were popular and the ones throughout the decade just to see if it really was as bad as people make out. And I, Here's my list. Bear with me, I need to just breathe in for do, a moment. Do people make out like the 90s was bad for sitcoms? That's a revelation to me, JD. Yeah, because it was, it was actually... Well, here we go. Birds Thank of a feather, Mr Bean, One Foot in the Grave, Waiting for God, Drop the Dead Donkey, Keeping Up Appearances, British Empire, Bottom, 2.4 Children, As Time Goes By, Absolutely Fabulous, Men Behaving Badly, Goodnight Sweetheart, Chef, The Detectives, Vicar of Dibley, Thin Blue Line, Father Ted, Marlon Partridge, The Royal Family, Dinner Ladies, Gimme, gimme, gimme. The League of Gentlemen. Spaced. An honourable mention to Only Fools and Horses because it was probably its peak then. You rang my lord. Oh, Dr. Beach. You rang my lord. Yeah. Dr. Beach. Last of the summer wine ran through the 90s. Some would argue the 90s was maybe not its best decade, but it's maybe its second best decade. Uh, What else would you have had? Uh, There's all sorts. Upper hand, yeah. Surgical spirit. So haunt me. Yeah. Allo Allo was in the night. It was the bad end of the bell. Yes. But, you know, a lot of the 90s, a lot of the 80s sitcoms were overran into the 90s. So it, it was a great decade for sitcoms, I'd say. I, the memory cheats, doesn't it? I think at the time, people probably thought, oh, it's not the 70s, it's not the 80s. But, then the, but they didn't know how barren the, the noughties were going to be for sitcoms. And I would argue they've been very barren. It's been, I think for me, um, they've, we've taken a step back in lots of ways because what I love about those 90s ones, there's that balance of the irreverent humour but also moments of pathos, moments where you're allowing sitcom characters to have some quite difficult material, very tragic real-life material that we kind of got rid of in the 2000s and everything was just all about gags and very safe humour, very slapstick humour and... It's just never been. I don't. It's never been the same. Would you? What? What I think is interesting when you going on what you're saying there. I think one of the big problems is is that the link between sitcom and theatre has pretty much been severed. So, with the exception of maybe well, Mrs. Brown's Boys, which is theatre with a you know the equivalent of smacking it over the head with a hammer. You know, it's so obviously theatre, but a bit of a grotesque spin on it. You know, things like Dad's Army, all the Croft and Perrys. Even keeping up appearances, or so all the all the Crofton Perrys, all the Roy Clarks, Faulty Towers. Some of those do have them. They've all been stage shows. Why have they all been stage shows? Because really, they were written as sitcoms. They were fairly television, but they were they were written and made not always, but pretty predominantly by people who had very close links to the theatre, acted by people you know who grew up in rep and things like that. So the link between sitcom 
which traditionally, you know, was a theatre. Well, they were filmed in theatres originally, a lot of them, weren't they? But the link was so strong, that, that, that connection. And then in the noughties, it kind of went, didn't it, with, with single camera and everything. And I, I don't, personally, that's one of the reasons I don't enjoy modern day sitcoms in the same vein, because that link of theatre's gone. And I don't, I, I've never fully been able to put my finger on why I don't like that. I just don't. But yeah. yeah. Sorry, I probably yeah. took your conversation into a different direction then. No, no, don't you worry, because it, it's great to speak to people who have that same theory, feeling about the way that older sitcoms have got that power still, have mm. still got that authentic quality that make them timeless, and why so many sitcoms in the last 20 years, now we're two decades into the new millennium, and it's just never been the same. We've had, as you say, a few sitcoms. We had My Family, which was... I liked it at the time, but I still quite enjoy it now, but it's nothing compared to 2.4 Children, which was original. I quite like some of the um, single camera shows. I like Gavin and Stacey, The Inbetweeners, Catastrophe, then you know, things like Miranda, which I really enjoyed. But I think that, as I say, most of the studio-based sitcoms now are just too safe and, and they're not really characters. They're more archetypes. They feel like, how do I put this? They don't feel as, what you're saying about authentic is probably the right word. Even though Dad's Army was, you know, it felt like a theatre, you know, production. It could have been a theatre production. It still felt real. Whereas yes. a lot of the modern day sitcoms, I'd call them the, the how would you describe them? The, Very the, oh. hammy acting. Well, I was going to say hammy, a bit hammy, but also a little bit um, like knowing they know how they're yes. reacting to the audience. Yes. Even though, so the, the, even though the, the they're filmed like with a with a live audience or like they've got a live audience they don't it doesn't it that's no excuse in my book for it to not feel real still the acting doesn't reflect the acting sorry reflects the scenario where it shouldn't it never used to 2.4 and one foot in the grave i think are the best ones for me for the acting of studio sitcoms because the writing is very observational in the way that characters interact and the way they behave and that's what's missing now everything everyone's almost looking to the camera and, yeah. and expecting a laugh from the audience rather than just just acting as yeah. it's out there I agree. I agree. Um, I mean, if you watch One Foot in the Grave, you wouldn't. It's like it's it's real. It's real life, uh, but it's it it's not single camera. So how it's still got that the, theatrical element, but it's it feels so real. I love that. Two point four as well. You you'd probably gasp if you if you saw the the set from a distance but whoa because it feels like a proper living room it looks like a proper living room whereas when you watch my family that's like that doesn't feel like a real house in my book so funny you say that because that's literally what we said in the in, in, the, in the first episode i had a, i spoke to a guy called david who was the guy who runs the dvd campaign page for 2.4 children he's been very active in the fandom Great guy for 10 years he's, he's been he's, he was really good chat actually and we mentioned about my family and i was saying that as you say that the house in 2.4 children looks real it looks like a lived-in house mm. whereas my family looks like a house you see in a magazine a show home not really lived in it looks very easy to film in. it's like a, it's like a set that's what it looks like it looks like a set quite americanized as well nothing more mainstream than my family it was the most safe and just Beige. Sorry, I'm not a fan of my family. I, I, I think it's a really beige sitcom that offers nothing. Sorry, I'm being very brutal here. It's got none of the emotional depth or substance that you find in 2.4 Children, nor as, as much as, you know, as great as Zoe Wanamaker and Robert Lindsay are as actors. In that, 
they're just putting in a what would I put it? There's not, uh, there's not a performance like Belinda Lang, put it that way, who is absolutely, I was thinking about this yesterday, 2.4 children is made on Belinda Lang, in my opinion. If, if she wasn't in that, if that had gone to a different actress, it could very easily have crashed and burned. Whereas to my family, I think you could have got away with a lot of different actors for um, the, the mum and dad role. And that's not because Zoe Wanamaker or Robert Lindsay are bad. It's just because there's not depth there in the characters or the sitcom. So it, it doesn't really matter. I think, I really, uh, sincerely, I think they're both great. But they're not, it's just a they're generic parts. It's, it could have been called the generic sitcom, my family. Sitcom Stephen, where have you been all my life? Because that's uh-huh. exactly what I feel about Belinda Lang. Because I think Bill is such a unique character. I think she's one of the most underrated sitcom characters ever. Mm. She's not like every other sitcom mum. She's got a depth, as you say, in that she has very strong views, politically, socially, and how her family should behave and conduct themselves. And it's just really different. And I, I agree with you, Belinda Lang is just so good. She's, you know, performance in every episode. And no matter what wacky thing she needs to do, she always plays it so seriously. That's what I love about her performance. But that, that seriousness could so easily be boring. But it's yeah. not. She's so. Um, is the word acerbic? I don't know if that's the right word. She's quite. She's sarcastic, but very dry with it, and that's where the humour comes. But apart from that, she's deadpan. You know, like she's very like everything's serious. It, it, she could easily be a really naggy, boring character that you just think, oh, irritating. But you just see the warmth in her with this steel exterior. Yeah, I, I think she, I couldn't commend her enough. I, did, I, I don't think she ever won any awards, did she, for that performance? The I, only award the show was ever nominated for was it Best New Comedy at British Comedy Awards in 92. Right. And it Strong lost year. to bottom. Yeah, I, I, I think the show was overlooked for a lot of things. Writing, directing, because it's a very well, te- I think a technically very well-made show and definitely a lot of the actors were overlooked especially Belinda Lang I agree she was I think up there with for me she's the characters up there with all the other great sort of female mm-hmm. British characters like Geraldine Granger, Hyacinth Bouquet, um, Rhea in uh, Butterflies really a really overlooked show. What I find interesting about her is is like in, we're in a very highly charged political era now I'm assuming it was maybe not quite as politically charged back then, but you have this woman who has a full-time, well, is it full-time? She's, is she full-time? She I works. Think so. she, she, owns, works. she owns that bakery. Yeah. yeah. So she has a career. She's a mum with two kids, 2.4. The dad's, you know, a bit, she runs that ship. She's the epitome of feminism, isn't she? She is the powerful woman without, without annoying you about it, without saying I'm a feminist. I believe in this, that, and the other you know, she just gets on with it. And, and, and there's so much to be, you know, respected in, in, in that character and the way she deals with life. You know, uh, she's a great role model, I would say. Probably one of the best sitcom role models, you know, there is. You know, after Captain Manrin. Yeah. I completely agree with you again, because I always find the show very progressive for its time. And both with Bill, with Rona, I think Single Rona's... woman going it on her, on her own, not needing men. Yes, not needing a, a full-time relationship. And then eventually when she does later in the series, spoiler alert, 
it's natural progression for the character. And then Ben as well. And these qualities of these three characters you see in the episode we're going to review because Ben's also quite, he's got a gentle side to him that even though he's quite lazy and a little bit sometimes not very tactful and doesn't think about things, he does have a very caring nature, which is quite, it'd be progressive if it was on now to have a male character like that. But to have a character like that from something nearly 30 years ago is quite incredible. So I'm going to ask you some initiation questions. This is my 2.4 initiation questions. You say you grew up watching it. So when did you first discover 2.4 children? I can't remember, you know. And and, and that's because it, it was there as a child. We're very young. So I don't know. I cannot remember. I just remember. And I, I list it with British Empire you know, birds of a feather, because they were just there. I can't remember. Uh, I don't know whether I was three, four, five. I don't know. I was around five. The first episode I can remember is I was on an airplane, maybe in 95. So I was maybe six years old. And it was the prisoner episode with the ball. What a great episode. And watching that on an airplane, that's imprinted in my mind. I can't remember the episodes. I can't remember a first time. That won't have been the first time. First time I can remember. And what is your favourite episode? Well, I just mentioned it. It's the prisoner so episode. That one. I love it. I love Shirley Bassey. I love the prisoner. Ele- it's the prisoner element. Um, you know, this is a sitcom about Belinda Lang Bill, isn't it? This episode is a bit more about the dad. But that said, it, it, there's, that's just glorious. Dropping him in that location and the music and everything about it is beautiful. I love that. I, I love the more dramatic episodes. You know, the more, un- that's just, Daft. The other one I would say is when um, Jenny's boyfriend, the German grandma, it's that farcicalness of like the old ladies and wheeling them out to the great escape. I mean, yeah. that's one of the best things about 2.4 is its use of music um, in both instances because the prisoner music, the great escape. So yeah, them, them two episodes, I'd say. And what's your favourite series? Uh, the What's the one with the prisoner? Is that series five? Or series six? five. I would say series five. I think there's a lot of strong episodes in series five. I think like any sitcom, it takes a few series to warm up. First two series, I say that they're a bit, I get where they're going with it. I think the execution sometimes a bit off. Series three, I think it really starts to pick up by by five. It's peak for me. Yeah. And you say your favorite character, is your favorite character Bill by any chance? No. Who do you think it is? I bet you don't. I bet you can't guess. I bet you can't guess. Tina? No. Well, ben? No. Oh, Liz Smith? No. Christine? I love her. That is, that's the second, you're the second person to say Christine. I love her. She's, yeah. she's, I just find her glorious. Every, yeah. She's the kind of character for me that walks on the screen and I'm, I'm, I'm on her side, I'm smiling, I love her. And she's such a great foil and, uh, with, with, you know, Ben. Um, if if 2.4 had been an American sitcom and they'd have done 10 series of 24 episodes... So 240 episodes, I'd have been like, come on, it's serious eight now. We need to do a two-hander with Ben and Christine, like, you know, stuck in the middle of nowhere in a van. Yeah. I, I think there could have been mileage in that. Definitely. Who's your yeah. favourite character? Ben. Ben. Right. Because, I, because, well, I do like Bill. I think Ben I just find very funny. And I just think Gary Olsen was brilliant in the role. Yeah. But then Bill is fantastic as well. And Bill and Lang is great as well. They're all good in it. Um, I don't know, Ben, I some, for some reason, I gravitate towards, but I do like Bill a lot, even though I think Bill's very underrated as a character in the sitcom canon show. Do I think... 
I'll be honest with you. I think this is down to basically how it's filmed. When you watch series seven onwards, you can tell that they're using different cameras and it's the screen resolution. That has aged perfectly. I would say that the earlier episodes, because because it's, how do I word this? When you When I watch a sitcom that's set in the past, that is from the past, I think it ages better than a sitcom set in its time from the past. Okay. Yeah. So a perfect example of this is Ever Decreasing Circles, which I think is a very good sitcom. However, visually, it is beige. The, the sets are all beige. Everything is beige and brown and cream. Everything. Costume, sets, everything about it. 2.4, early on in particular, is borderline that with a hint of yellow yeah. um, and pale blue. Um, I don't think the sets are warm enough, so I think that has aged it. Obviously, that's just aesthetics, but also the screen resolution. So, and I think as well, series one and two, series one, you've got the motorbike bloke, which I don't like. I don't think that's a very good storyline. I don't think it, it totally misses the point that it, it's trying to make. Um, I don't think that's aged well. No. They're trying to do the narrative, but they do it badly. It's uh, it does kind of end abruptly. Eventually, mm. it doesn't. It sort of goes off a bit in series two and then ends. It's it's it does divide people that character. I like the idea a lot, and I do think some parts of it work, but you know, it does go away very quickly. It's a bit butterflies, isn't it? Because it's about yeah. her. You know, it's when she's feeling wistful and like you know, oh, I'm doing the washing and nobody's listening to me and. Oh, there's this this man that I really like, escapism, you know. Yeah. And I don't think the sitcom needs that. Um, no. That said, I would have liked a proper resolution to it, other than you know opening up the newspaper and it just feels a bit clunky. It's not dealt with well, and the way yeah. it's dropped in and out of the episodes, and then sometimes you don't see anything for it. I think there's one or two episodes where there's no mention of it, isn't there? Am I correct? I think he doesn't end up in episode... He's definitely in episode the next one. Yeah. The one after that. It's, I think it's episode five in series one. He doesn't appear. He's, he gets quite a bit of screen time in the sixth episode, but I don't think he's in it in the fifth one. Now, if it had been a modern sitcom, that wouldn't have happened. No. I think it would have been every episode. It would have been plotted fully. So I, I, I don't like that element. I don't think it works. Okay. And uh, why do you think the show's been forgotten? Uh, a mixture, I think. First, first thing, screen resolution. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I think my family was repeated in lockdown. Um, I was like, why aren't they showing British Empire? Like for me, I was like, British Empire, that would be hilarious. Put that on on a Friday night, just one of the best episodes. I bet Twitter will go mental. It'll get four or five million. They wouldn't do it. Why? Screen resolution. So, I mean, the later on episodes, they could get away with it. But I think because the majority of it's got that lower res, I think that's one of the reasons. I think, unfortunately, Gary Olsen is passing. I think that's had an effect. And it shouldn't. I don't understand why, but I think it maybe has. And my family, I think my family, just the fact that there was another successful family sitcom after it, I don't think has helped. And then I've heard a rumour about the music as well. I don't know if that's right, the licensing. Can you shine any light on what I've just said and clarify? And what's your thoughts? I agree on, on most of those things because I think I've said it 
in the I've literally said it in the last two because my this the my family thing comes up a lot and and I think it's quite symbolic that Gary Olson died on September 12 2000 and then my family's first episode aired on the following week on the 19th of September so it's literally a one week later after Gary's death which quietly brought the show to an end Mm -hmm. and then something else comes along and takes the crown and then people just sort of moved on with it the music is interesting because that's what's prevented the dvds being released in full but even now relaxe vu and the sweet hereafter which they're the one where they have the the addiction to a chocolate bar they not be, they can't be repeated because of licensing issues i think it's music in the christmas special but i'm not sure about sweet hereafter but yeah it, it it's just become very easy it's just just going into the background because of these issues and therefore people can't um can't access it easily but you know that's the purpose of this podcast the unusual thing about the first two series was was this strange biker figure it's it's hard to explain really how this came about because the writing process is such a mysterious one. Some of it is, is a very conscious thing and some of it is a very subconscious thing. But I think kind of looking looking back on it and trying to be relatively objective, it was it was we were kind we were kind of examining what Bill Porter's life was like and what she was unhappy with and how she would make the journey of discovering what it was that would make her life better and you know it it, it might have been that her marriage wasn't working so we explained we rather we explored this a little here and there but it it turns out that it wasn't that at all what she was seeking was a more positive control over the elements uh, in her life she you know in this early stage she works for somebody else and she can't even drive in the first episode because uh, you'll see in episode two where we meet tina for the first time uh tina was originally played by patricia Brake, although later by sandra dickinson when patricia was um off making el dorado in spain so we couldn't uh, have her anymore so the the biker was a sort of element of Bill's sort of subconscious and an, an agent for trying to work out exactly what she was seeking in life. And um, that's how it sort of plays out through the first series. So in episode two, what we see is, uh, as part of Bill's journey, we see Tina, who exemplifies a woman who is completely happy with the lot of being, you know, rather downtrodden and traditional in her role and Bill's desire to sort of break out of it and be more herself while still, you know, maintaining all her nurturing of the family and so forth. The difficulties of how you try and balance all these things and that's pretty much the first couple of episodes. We'll move on now to the episode review. So this is the second episode of series one, the second episode of the entire series. We start on a bus and a young woman gets off and Bill is run down, runs down the steps carrying loads of shopping bags and the door shuts. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm ever on the bus with a load of shopping, I'll try and make sure I'm at the, I'm, I'll, I'm, I'll literally push people out the way so I can just be there ready to get out when the door opens. Uh, yeah it's it's and um, again we can all relate to the again we can relate to bill it's yeah. that that 
thing of life. Things happen. We're busy. There's not enough time in the day. I've got to be here, there at that time. Oh, I've got all these bags. We can all relate to that, can't we? And it's just another example of the show just being so realistic. Yeah, definitely. And I think Bill is really good at the way she sort of defends herself in public. She, you know, the, the door shuts, the guy said, the driver says she should have rung the bell. So using her left breast, she rings the door, rings the bell and says, latex one, London transport, nil. And, and has that brilliant sarcastic wit to her. She's Wonder Second, Woman, isn't she, basically? You know. Oh, she is, yeah. She knows what she knows what to do. She the life's thrown this barrier towards her, but she has breasts. Boom. Yeah. And, you know, she's not afraid to use them. Yeah, love it. And then the next scene, she's walking down the street and behind the young girl who got out the, off the bus before her. They walk past, they walk past two builders. Um, the two builders turn around to the girl who's, I think, wearing like a mini skirt and says, you know, ooh, nice ass," and being very sort of typically harassing her. And then when Bill walks up towards them, they kind of turn around and get back to work. And it's you can just hear the audience laugh because you just realise that Bill is just being ignored and she doesn't and she doesn't really react to it does she she said do you think she's disappointed about the fact that she's being ignored i i don't i don't i I tried looking at her face just to see if she does react to it i think she just sort of just goes past them and doesn't really show any reaction to it what i like about her is that i think now one that scene wouldn't happen and if it did happen there would be some sort of in a deep moral message and the character would, you know, tell the builders off. Whereas Bill sees it happening. It happens to, you know, let you men, but she turns it on them in, in, in a, in a, in a good way, in a, in a nice funny way, not in a, we're going to lecture you as an audience kind of way. I don't feel like as a viewer, I'm being lectured or I'm being given some moral message. I just see that this is, a character who every episode is going through their day-to-day life and they, this is part of it. They're feeling, you know, a bit ignored in life. You know, um, it's the, the episode's clearly trying to show a message at the start and she just, she, that builder's got his ass out. So she wolf whistles him, you know. And that's what I love. It's like, and it's like it's a double standard because when she does it, they turn around and they're kind of like, what's her problem? Yeah. And the other builder says, oh, change of life. And you just think, firstly, I don't know any builder who would think that. They just think, oh, she's just being a cow or something. But again, I, I like the fact that she just, you know, she, I think she sees men and women very equally, which, which actually is something she says to Tina later on. So yeah. it, she just thinks, well, you're doing it to her, uh, that girl. I'm just going to do it to you. It sets the scene well for the episode, actually. Really that, does. That whole, that whole, you know, discourse, that, that conversation, event with the builders. Exactly. And then actually there's one bit where she sees someone on a motorbike thinking it's the guy, but it's not him. So again, that kind of brings it in his mm. image into the episode as well. So at the living room, Jenny's on the phone having sort of typical um, teenage girl gossip. David's watching TV and the bell keeps ringing continually. and there's a toss up between the two about who's going to open it. And Jenny wins the match. Typical older sibling threatening David with the knowledge of what's in his lunchbox. Now, as an audience member, he's a 13 year old lad. Your mind just goes into absolute different depths. What is, what could be in his lunchbox? What, what, would, you, what would you think would be in his lunchbox? I mean, I used to have a snail in a box in my garage as a child, a pet snail with some grass 
my mum and dad didn't know about it. I'm in my mind, I'm thinking of Snell, but maybe David's a bit more dramatic and adventurous than I was. Uh, it could be a frog, a snake. Who knows? We never know. A rat. We never know. That's the beauty of that. It's not too obvious again because it plays out a bit later on, doesn't it, as well? And you never yeah. find out. And I like that. It's planting the seed for something. And you say it's a very interesting way of doing it. It's not like Basil the Rat in Faulty Towers. It's something a bit more just done. It's just done differently. It's explored yeah. differently later on. So David opens the door and Bill has once again used her left breast to ring the doorbell. And I like the way she just says, oh, it's a good thing I'm not still breastfeeding because... You know, she's just using every part of her body to just get things done. She can't this, use the hands. <laughs> this is a woman who is, is run ragged, isn't she? She's yeah. the, the, the captain of the ship. The, the vice captain is a child as well at the best of times. She has a job. She's got a mum who's hard work. She's got so much weight on her shoulders. So she's using all of her bits and bobs to, you know, the day is hectic. What have I got to use? Boom. You know. Yeah, uh, exactly. Bill provides Jenny with the trainers that she went out to buy on a lunch break. And Jenny initially is like, oh, she's here. But then suddenly changes her tune when there's a trainers there for her. So she's a very typical teenager, very fickle and very two-faced to, as to her mum. And they're not the ones she wants. So then Bill says that she'll have to have them wielded to her feet forever and says, you know, all, none of the girls will wear this. And then Bill says, well, the boys will pick, will, um, and so the boys will um, catch up with you first with the trainers. And she just doesn't care. She's just like, well, you'll get what you're given. Yeah. It's like, uh, I remember when I was a kid, I was at my friend's house and he was torturing me. I was only like 10. And his mum shouted up from the stairs. She said, what are you doing up there? And then he said, I'm torturing Stephen. And then she just went, well, do it quietly. You know, it's that <laughs> kind of, you know, the, the mum's like, you're going to do what you're going to do, but, you know, behave yourself. And that's like what Bill's like. She's just like, again, just come at me and I will bounce it off. She's she's like a, a ship going through an, uh, an asteroid field, isn't she? Yeah. Bam, bam, bam. Everything bounces off her. Absolutely. And then Jenny storms upstairs and this is the first time we hear Bill say, don't slam your door, which I still maintain is should be up there with, I don't believe it, and all those. No, do you think? I think so, because it's no. like how many parents will say that? No, I hate. I don't. It really. It. Sorry, we can disagree. Uh, it grates on me. But the first time, okay, that's fine. Second time, yeah. But then after a while, but they, I noticed that they, they they stop that a bit more later on as the show goes on, don't they? Yeah, yeah. It's a sort of. It's sometimes catchphrases can be overdone, can't they? Or if you try and do it in a different way. Yeah, I think. I think first time, yeah. But then after, I do know by the end of series three, I'm a bit like oh, slamming doors. I'll tell you what I want. I want a t. The thing I really wish they released was a t-shirt saying "Don't slam your door." Don't slam your door. She she she's speaking for how uh, mums across the country is she a whole generation of nineties mums? Um, but there's no this. There's no catchphrases in the show, is there? No, none of them ever really took off. No. Um, and well, the, another thing showing that the age of the show, the reason she's annoyed that Jenny's on the phone is because Ben might call saying he's running late. Now, these days, you just get a WhatsApp or a text saying, oh, I'm not, not going to be here you know, for tea tonight. Do you, you, when you're watching it, do you look back and think, oh, my God, my mum had that? You know, I remember such and such wearing that. I remember... I had one of them. You know, it's such a time capsule, isn't it? Like the 90s is kind of seen as the generation that never ended, the decade that never ended. But even still, you look at it and you think, oh my God, like I watched an episode 
the other day and um it was the dead dad episode uh which i loved um and talking pages and i was like talking pages what was that and then i was like oh i remember um you know and you, again you just think mobile phones so that's something that's happened on the cusp of 2.4 children and my family isn't it mobile phones and the internet it's that cusp yeah. isn't it and the, and even though they're only about three four years between you know well one year technically there's such a gulf isn't there when you compare early 2.4 to late my family Oh, I know. It, it really was the, te- the decade where technology just went on a big mm-hmm. rampage. And I think the show really reflects that in lots of ways, like with yeah. the videos. And I think if it went into the 2000s, DVDs would have come into it. Digital, they have the d- digital TV in the last episode. So you're absolutely right. It really plays on the changing culture. And then she gets a phone call and it's a man with a very funny voice. He goes, hello. And then she just like copies him going, hello, who is that? And then she asks him, are you coming home for a kinky time tonight? And then I love it when you don't hear the phone, but the audience laugh can just from Bill's face, you can tell it's not good. And then when she says it's for Jenny, oh, it's just, she just, she just can't get a break, can she? <laughs> you, you could have done that part. If they ever bring it to theatre, you could do the voiceover. That was very good. Oh, thank um, you so much. Like, Hello. <laughs> Hello. Uh, yeah. It, again, it's you're on her side, aren't you? you yeah. Again, I, I'm using the analogy again. It's like she's a ship, a spaceship going through an asteroid belt. You know, whatever's thrown her in that day, any misstep she makes, you know, she's made a mistake there, hasn't she? She's misjudged the situation. But you're yeah. on her side. You know, Absolutely. you're always on her side. You're always thinking, oh, come on, pat on the back, get on with it. You're fine, don't worry. You know, and you always feel for the character, which is great. She's likable. That's the thing. But She's really, really likable. Isn't that bit very one foot in the grave? For me, that is the most one foot in the grave element of the episode, that that one yeah. bit with the phone call. You yeah. know, um, and, and when you watch One Foot in the Grave, you always feel like Victor, again, he's, he's a ship going through the asteroids. Whatever's thrown at him, he'll, he'll do it. I don't believe it. And, uh, you know, what in the name of... Uh, they react very diff- slightly differently, the two characters, but they're both about events happening to them yeah and and the reacting to it and the fact that sometimes life can throw weird occurrences at you and you just have to laugh at people how often do we say oh my life's like a sitcom or all that scene was like a sitcom yeah you know things that happen that you can relate to so later on we stay in the living room and later on in the night david's watching tigers on tv and he uses a toy gun shooting at the tv and that's very important for character development in a few minutes bill sends him off to bed and and again another great bit of observation that andrew marshall shows is david says oh well sammy's mum lets him stay up late or whatever his friend's called and bill uses the threat of isn't she the one who kisses him at the school gate and he goes that's blackmail and it's a great bit because you know that there's so many children out there whose mums will threaten them with I'll kiss you at the school gate unless you're tied to your room, unless you do this, unless you do your homework. And again, it's, it's something that children can relate to as well as the parents. It's, 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 that's the whole point of the show. It was on for families and everybody could take something from it. I love the kids in this show. I think they're really, really well drawn and well observed. I think David is. I think, I think Jenny lacks, like I said, she lacks the warmth um, I think there's without I wouldn't want uh, want them to have gone really you know obvious and made her a goth or something like that. But I think she just lacks a little bit of downtime. Whereas David, you get that with David, 
you know, even later on, you still get, he's not, he's not doing his thing constantly. Whereas Jenny, particularly early on, her thing constantly is just being moody. I don't, as a viewer, I don't find I get anything from that. So I disagree with you on that, that, that one side of what you're saying. David, though, wholeheartedly, I agree. You know, making him some sort of, he's just a, a, a horrible little boy, isn't he? And I say horrible in the sense of like, oh, dirty, like mucky. You know, he's, 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 he's naughty. He's naughty in a nice way. You know, he's just, he's just you, 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 a total caricature of what a little brother, an annoying little brother would be like. Absolutely um, mischievous. And very just, Malcolm just, in the middle. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was a great show. That was a particularly good family sitcom, yeah, that. Very, very much. And actually, the mum's very like, much like the mum in Malcolm in the Middle and the dad. So I, maybe 2.4 children is... Ba- well, Malcolm in the Middle is the American 2.4 children, maybe. Yeah, that's a really good observation. We'll do an essay on it. Yes, definitely. So Ben comes home and he's very tired from the day and I'd love the bit when Bill does the mime of the violin music as he's sort of explaining about how difficult his job was like oh yeah you've had a bad day well so have I it's just that thing that everyone does they come home to their other half and then say how difficult they've had it but then someone else has had an equally busy day well and what's good about it as well is that he knows she's going to do it so it reinforces the point that this is a real couple they know each other they're married um there's more to this relationship than you're seeing on the screen yeah what you've seen in episode one and two that's not just it this this isn't this isn't zoe wanamaker and robert Lindsay and my family this is a no. couple that know each other he knows yeah. she's doing that behind him He's, she's done it before yeah. and it's not an obvious way of doing it either you're not thinking oh that's just done because to make them look like they know each other you know yeah. it's written with such sincerity yeah Definitely. And I think what's great about this episode, um, in the first one, the first episode, Leader of the Pack, is very much about Bill and her day uh, routine, going to work, coming home and having to deal with everything. And one thing we noticed in the first episode, me and Tom, who um, was the guy I spoke to about episode one, Ben's character in the pilot is not very, it's not the character we know eventually, he's quite arrogant and he's quite um, flirty with Roan at one point. So I think there was a testing the waters in the pilot to see what his potential character would be like. But in episode two, not only is it good to see the two of them interact, which is another, it's almost like another set, um, pilot episode just sort of developing the character relationships. But the fact that he actually asks her how she is because he's recognised she's been down for a few days really shows, as I say, he's actually quite a caring person, even though he's sometimes a bit thoughtless. He does ultimately love his wife and, and wants the best for her. Absolutely. I don't think I don't think many people would watch that program and ever think. I, how do I say this? I think it's important for the the niceness of the show, and it was a good decision made that even though this is a woman who has everything put upon her, and she takes the world the weight the world on her shoulders, like she's the captain of the ship, as I said before, that you don't dislike a husband. All that isn't because a husband's a bad person. You know, he's caring. He, he he works full time. He's not lazy. He's lazy when he comes up, but he's still doing his job full time. He's providing for his family. He's caring when he needs to be. He's gentle. You know, he's a sweet person. The the stress she has is because he's a bit childlike. Yeah. Um, that character could very easily have been very unlikable if they'd have gone down the other route. And then you would have 
started to just, well, it would have been a bit, you know, why is she with him? Leave him, you know. But instead, you appreciate that she's sticking to, she's, she's with him and they've, she's, she's running this unit. And it's a unit worth staying there for because he's a good dad and it's worth her having this stress for. A hundred percent agree. Because if you look at some of that butterflies, Rhea in that, who's married to another Ben, uh, played by Jeffrey Palmer, who's recently passed away. He, he is a bit more of a dictatorship in the household. He's a little bit more the boss, a bit more commanding. So you do have those moments with that character in, in that show where you think, why is she with him? But as you say with Ben, it's very clever of Andrew Marshall to make that character a good person because I think it's very easy as it as this potential was in the pilot episode for a male character for the vice to be being a creep or being a bit arrogant by actually making him just a bit lazy that's not making him a bad person human lazy it's human well. lazy yeah human lazy that's the thing as well it's the kind of laziness we can all relate to you don't begrudge him for that either i don't think you just think oh yeah i i, I do that when i come home from work so you're appreciating because you're appreciating his laziness and you're also appreciating her frustration because she doesn't lecture she gets no. on with it so you value you see both sides and she makes a joke about it. So when she tells him the story about the school wimp who rings and tells him she thought it was Ben, she says, oh, I asked him if he wanted a kinky time. And Ben says, did he say yes? And she went, yes. That's when I realised it wasn't you. And, you know, they kind of make that joke of he, she, she knows. He, he knows that she knows that he can't always be bothered to yeah. have sex with her. But it's just that they just make light of it. Like we all do sometimes. Sometimes you just have to make light of things, otherwise you'll go crazy. Yeah. Again, another great observation. She wants him to fix the broken boiler. He does eventually, when she kind of opens up about how low she's feeling, sort of starts being a little bit sort of cheeky with her and suggests that she goes upstairs and makes herself comfortable. And, you know, she's sort of playful when she says about, should I wear my flame-proof nighty? nightdress and i like that about herbie and them because they're clearly trying and he is trying that's the thing he's actually making an effort in this scene but eventually when she goes upstairs to make a bath he goes on the, the sofa and he confirms the point four child role when he grabs the the gun that david using the toy gun and starts shooting at the tv which now the lions on the tv are actually mating so it's that kind of mix of adult content, but also the fact that he is actually a grown-up child and ba David will eventually grow up to become him. Yeah, yeah. And will Jenny become her? I think that the two Claires look like Belinda Lang's daughter. They really cast them well and look. I think, actually do think Bill was really stroppy teenager. I do. I think she's very confident and very cervic in, in, as an adult and I can imagine she had that quality as a child and a teenager. Do you think yeah. she will? Um, to a degree, yeah, I do. Because, um, but it's hard to imagine Jenny being Belinda Lang, isn't it? Oh yeah, that's very true. Yeah, because that that to me is she she's just so in control. Yeah, and to imagine another cat, Jenny being like that with her own family, I don't know. It's very hard to imagine. But then, could you imagine Belinda? Uh, sorry, Bill turning into Bet. 
Well, there is the theory that we all turn on into our parents eventually. So maybe that's the situation. Maybe the psychology is we, we, we don't want to, but that's just kind of an inevitable that we just do. So it's a bit oh. of a, you know, you think, oh. And then, then, and then if you get really weird, how the hell are uh, Ben and Tina related? Oh, I know. But Tina's very much turned into a heist and bouquet in this episode. But you couldn't imagine them to be siblings, could you? I can't. I'm like, so there's that weirdness, isn't there, of like yeah. uh, where a character a character's going to turn into the, you know, parents and how are them two like each other, you know? But yeah, let's just enjoy it. it. <laughs> it's great fun. And I think, it, it, like you say, in real life, how often do we see siblings and think, how are you two related? Or how, are you, mm-hmm. how is, you know, are you adopted or something? This, it's it, People say that about me and my brother. It was a, p- a period of time where we didn't look anything alike and people would say, oh, you adopted because I'm the youngest. Where did you get him from? Yes. That's what you like saying. Where did you find him? Like, he's not, he's not like nothing like you lot, but yeah. So, um, so we go upstairs and Bill is getting ready and Ben is just slowly sleeping in the sofa, watching the snooker. And it's some really good cross sections between the scenes. You've got Bill waiting in bed looking frustrated and then she picks up a book and shows the camera as women who kill, which is a sign that she's growing frustrated. And then when she does go downstairs to ask if he's coming up, there's a great little bit of innuendo here when she says, you know, he says, oh, I just want him to put the pink. And Bill goes, don't we all? And it's quite a bit bit of a a suggestive line there. But it Double entendre. It's good as well because it it will go right over the head of a child. Yeah. But it's something there for the parents, isn't it? You know, a bit of a, oh, he's a joke. He won't understand, you know. Um, so it's not done too... It's done, it's done with a piece, you know, a U rating. Yes. And it's always good because it means there's something for the parents to enjoy and that for yeah. the kids who grow up watching it you recognised something, a new joke that you wouldn't have understood younger. There's two bits in the when she's upstairs, Bill, when she's getting ready. First time, she's um, gargles some mouthwash. The second time, something happens where she grabs something from her bedroom drawer, goes into the bathroom, runs to the bathroom quickly. There's some kind of skewing noise, and then she says, come back! I'm, I'm assuming that's something to do with lady parts. I don't, I don't know. I'm a man, and <laughs> and and I'm, I don't I don't I'm gay as well, so I don't I don't know I don't know <laughs> I wouldn't guess. Who knows? I think Who maybe knows? that was just something for the for the the adult the women the but adult it, women to to guess. It, again, it's another example, you know, with the with what's in David's box. With, yeah. it's just that your mind runs away with you, doesn't it? And we all have ideas of, but it, the viewer will get from that what they they get from that. Um, and it's a nice it's a nice little bit isn't it definitely it's a it's it, again another good observational moment and so when ben does go to bed bill's asleep he falls asleep and then she kind of wakes up pushes him and then he takes the quilt and so she's just literally having a really bad night a really frustrating night and it's a you know people go on about british companies about sort of tiptoeing around sort of sexual frustrations and if you think of something like george and mildred you know, she's rampant as hell and he's always just not interested. But what's clever about this is there's no, whereas with him, he's just not interested and, and just a type of typical sort of British man. In this case, they've clearly probably had a, a good sex life previously, but just because of the way life is 
as the previous episode um there's a talk between bill and Ron. they're tired they're exhausted and the rat race is just just making things a bit stale and they've been together for many many years and it just happens and isn't that reassuring oh definitely and the fact is that they still love each other and that ben is trying to make an effort he's just tired he's had a long day so again you you appreciate uh you appreciate them him as well because if he'd have if it had been he'd gone to the pub with his friends you'd feel very differently about it wouldn't you because he'd be prioritizing something uh else over his relationship with bill but actually he's just tired and he's yeah. just on the sofa just tired and and you can get that can't you and you know it's, it's just life and the bit when they wake up in the morning and then bill says what time is it and then david's in the middle of them both saying breakfast time you know it's just that reality oh the day starts again she's not had what she wanted the night before and now she's got to get on with the rest of the day and so we go into the living room on the Sunday morning. And I noticed that Ben wears the same T-shirt from the night before that he went to bed in. Um, so he kind of has a lack of hygiene. And then you realise he hasn't sorted out the washing machine. Um, and she sort of, again, very quick-witted. She's just like, right, well, I'll call the headmaster and tell them I've gone punk. My new name is Vomit Scav. It shows its age a little bit because you think of punk, I just think of the 70s and 80s. So that's very much showing their youth. Exactly, yeah. Uh, there's there is and and that's something nice when you're watching it actually now because you get them ref there's a richness in certain references now isn't there same yeah. with the you know what they're wearing some of the things Rona wears I'm like bloody hell I I remember my mum wearing things like that you know I'm sh- pretty sure my mum wore jumpers like Bill them jumpers she wears that you're getting something out of it that a viewer at the time wouldn't have got out of it. We always talk about something capturing the time and being dated as a negative, but I've, I always argue that it should capture the time that it's made. If it, it's just it's in the writing and the themes that remain universal, where if it's looking like something that's made from the 90s, which, let's be honest, has, was a good decade, certainly been rubbish ever since in history, that makes it more appealing. It's like with Friends, that's why Friends is still so popular after all these years. Ben's very clueless about her frustration. He reads the newspaper about a woman who pumps 16 bullets into her husband's head. And then Bill, just in her way going, his condition is described as satisfactory. Again, it goes right over Ben's head. He's completely clueless. But isn't that great that this is like a woman who is just, she's like... She's clever. She's cleverer. She's more patient. She's more organized. She's just the most. She's just. The, she's perfect. Not perfect because nobody's perfect. But she, she does just a good job, doesn't she? You know, even there, she's on a different level. A yeah, different intellectual level to uh, Ben. She's smarter than he is. He can Where? be very. He can. He's very good with plumbing, but not very good with his mind. Really, going to Rona's kitchen. And Bill goes over with the washing and in the kitchen, there is a blonde man called Sven who speaks, who's Swedish. Isn't it, isn't it just sort of obvious that you've got a Swedish character called Sven? So whenever I think of Sven, I just think of the World Cup, the um, football manager. Is it obvious or is that because we're products of our own time and we see Sweden, Sweden, Swede, sorry, as being called Sven? Uh, yeah. And, because this is ten, nine, ten years before Sven Goran Eriksson, maybe it That's wasn't as obvious then. I don't know. Or maybe Andrew Marshall sort of looked into the future. I mean, he's got psychic powers. Maybe. 
and he's completely naked. He's got, as, as, as Rona said, he's got a Scandinavian lack of inhibition. Um, so she gives him a, dress, a, a towel and she's using a, a book of how to speak Swedish to try and understand, for him to understand her. And it's just very typical of Rona. She just, she, she, she'll go with anybody even if they can't speak a word of English. No, no fussy. And it's nice as well when um, she's like, oh, he doesn't speak a word of English. And then she'll say like something about coffee. Um, And he'll go, yeah. Uh, Sorry, she'll say something not about coffee while she's pouring the coffee. And he just goes, yeah. Um, And it's really nice because it's the mix of the visual with the verbal, isn't it? Uh, Definitely. I think the line she says is um, she has the coffee, the the, the, the kettle or the um, teapot kettle. It it was a weird looking kettle, actually. Very 90s. Very 90s. Um, and she says, uh, you know, Sven, would you like to go to bed with Nicholas Ridley? And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah. And then she, she yeah, pulls. Yeah. The it's, and it's great. It's a little bit, it's really um, quite how, a sweet moment. How nice is their friendship, though, as well? It's such a lovely relationship because I, I, that's the bit where she comes in to do the washing, isn't it? Yeah. And um, one, they, you couldn't get two people with such different lives. You know, yeah. and we only get a little snippets of Rona's life, don't we? You know, yeah. um, God knows what she's been doing with this Swede. You know, and he's there naked in the living room, uh, sorry, the kitchen. And he, that's perfectly fine and normal for him, you know. And then you've got Belinda Lang running in with all the washing, you know, and a big frumpy jumper. And Rona comes in like, you know, like, hey. One thing I think is interesting about 2.4, um, again, it's about the relationships between the characters, is Rona and Bill's friendship, because that could very easily have been a very different kind of relationship. Bill's such a dominant character. You know, it's, it's very clear that she wears the trousers in the friendship. She doesn't just wear the trousers in her marriage. She wears the trousers in her friendship. But you, you don't ever feel like she's talking down at Rona. She never. It never feels like a bullying friendship. They, 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 they seem like equals still, even though there's very clearly the more opinionated, more you know, strong-willed one in the in the friendship. And and what I think's really nice is obviously whenever Bill has an hour of need, every episode doesn't she? Every episode is there's an hour of need. There's some family crisis at the Porters. Who does Bill go to each time? Who is a fir- the first person that is at that door or on the phone? It's Rona. Every single time. Rona loves that, clearly. She loves it. You know, Bill has got this friend who she relies on, who's always there for her, and she needs her, because she always needs somebody, because there's disaster after disaster. And Rona has a friend who has this family, and she's got a... F- because Rona has this, you know... A uh, very different lifestyle to build. Their lifestyles couldn't be more opposite. They live on the same street. They live across from each other on the same street. Maybe that's a, another inner meaning to that. Maybe we're thinking too deep. <laughs> but she, she, she's getting from this friendship the fact that uh, she's got some family there. She's yeah. like a like you. I don't know if you said before, but it's like she's the surrogate of the family, isn't she? Definitely, she she's she hasn't. Life. But this yeah. friendship, this family as well. Sorry, go. On. No, I was, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's it's like they all benefit from her relationship in some way, um, from her um, inclusion in the family. And I think, in a way, other sitcoms would have just portrayed her as just the 
sex crazed neighbor and that's it she'd just be the butt of jokes all the time but she's not she's got so much depth and even in these early episodes it's a, a hint that there's not all you know she's not all that happy so in the in this scene she says to to bill you know you're it's all right for you you're happily married and that's when bill goes into the bit about the biker referring to the last scene of leader of the pack or the second to last scene of leader of the pack she met up with the biker at the bus stop and he offered her a lift and she we learned that she didn't take it but she regrets it even though you know despite the, the ben and the kids and rona again she she's using that moment to console her by saying she just has to put it out of her mind and you know knowing that there's no judgment coming from her they both want the same things really don't they Definitely, because they both liked the biker. They both thought he was as dishy as each other, really. They both want the same things, but it's that analogy, isn't it? The grass is always greener. Yeah. So, Bill, the grass is always greener. Adventure, romance, passion. Rona, the grass is always greener. Settling down, family, marriage. And they yeah. both have. They both want the same things, but they're in different, the diff- opposite side. Definitely, and that's a very... That's a very good distinction between the two. And as you say, living on opposite sides of the street, of the street, Bill in a family house and Rona in a bachelorette pad. We're maybe thinking about this way too deep. We're maybe, we're maybe like, you know, doing a Shakespeare essay on this. And but maybe it's true. Maybe there is this in the depth of meaning. Who well, knows? the thing, thing is, there's no, there's none of this on the internet or any book about looking into the show like this in detail. So I'm just pleased to be able to be talking about it and with someone who's so passionate about it. It's just... I did... At at university, we did a module for for three months in sitcom. Uh, I'm probably looking into this way too much in depth. But, you know, you could could get a paragraph out of that in an essay at university about them living on the opposite sides of the street. Doesn't mean it's right, but you could. <laughs> you have to find and do a dissertation, so you might as well just do something you enjoy and yeah. make up anything. And as long yeah. as it's well written and debated, just go for it. Any bollocks. Absolutely. Oh, so we're we're outside that back at outside the house. Bill's done the washing, and Ben makes up for not fixing the washing machine by suggesting they go to Tina's for dinner, which Bill is just not having at all. She even tries to make the excuse that David doesn't like their Shane the son the the cousin and yet he's actually very keen to leave so she it's really you know it's just her trying to make an excuse so when they're outside the house Ben and David are in the front of the van they go outside and open the back door so it's even like Bill has to be re- resigned to the the booth the, the the main boot of the van well isn't that sure how much of a good mother she is because she wants a kid to have the seatbelt and again you think She's nice. She, you know, as much as there's chaos, you yeah. know, and arguing and bickering in the house, they're good parents and they care. Yeah, definitely. There's, there's love there. And then they go to the house and Tina's house is obviously very different to... It's lovely. Yeah, it's very nice. It's a kind of path that Bill says she would want to skip up. And actually, it does look a bit like Port Marion, the garden, and has a bit of a sort of wizard of oz-esque look to it do we know where that was filmed by the way because i just remember being in a place called high barnet in london once and 
that when I watched it, I thought, oh, is that High Barnet? It looks very much like a street I've been down in the past. It could be. Um, I think it was, I thought it was filmed near Luton, um, but I actually think it is. I think, I think the house, their house, the Porter's house is definitely in Chiswick. Um, I'll have to look at the locations for Tina's house. Tina is played by Patricia Blake, who is Fletcher's daughter in Porridge. She's brilliant. Um, this was her only appearance in Two Point for Children as Tina because she went off to do El Dorado, which is... You would know, have been a great children, experience. It would have been a great experience. I would have done El Dorado just for yeah. the experience for a yeah. year, you know. But that said, uh, yeah, critically, maybe not the best move. Um, she, but you know, she was the lead. She was basically the Pauline Fowler of El Dorado, wasn't she? Yes. You know, uh, EastEnders, Julia Smith. I'm sorry, I'm hijacking your podcast here with a different show, but Julia Smith was noted as saying she didn't want any well-known actors in EastEnders, but she made an exception for Wendy Richard and Gretchen Funken. But Gretchen Funken wasn't a star, is what I mean. Wendy Richard was. Um, And then El Dorado, Julia Smith. And when you look at the cast, it's very clear that Patricia Brick is the well-known one, you know, and obviously from sitcom as well. So it's interesting. And they both played dowdy kind of wives. So yeah, maybe another kind of link to it. The old, she's old, great. Old. She is. Um, she's great in porridge. She's great in this. Going and straight as well. Yes, good in that. that. That's a great sitcom. I've not seen it. I will watch it because I want to watch all the porridge again. Um, I'll need to watch Going Straight and the film. All all these great sitcoms to to win so, watch again. So much to look forward to. And she's great in as. Tina in that she's like the auntie who I love getting like I, I, I'm quite tactile I think's the word I like giving my aunties a, a hug and stuff but she gives David that kind of kiss where it's like she's just kind of grabbing his cheeks and giving a little kiss and he's kind of it all and then when she says to go inside and says to David don't encourage him to pick his scab you know she's quite different in some ways to Bill in that think david would pick his scab because that's what a lot of kids do but tina's very kind of buttoned up and wants her kids to to be very well just like her really but what's interesting about patricia brick is like she plays such a different this is a testament to the actress she plays such a different character to what she played in uh porridge and going straight you know um she's gone from being the brassy you know uh girl next door who everybody fancies you know dad's ogle at to be in this She's kind of like a bit like a uh, hyacinth bouquet, isn't she? A more realistic hyacinth, I would say. I was going to make the hyacinth analogy because you were saying before about you couldn't believe that um, Ben and Tina are siblings. It's the same in Keeping Up Appearances because hyacinth is so different to her her other sisters. But I think that is because she's self-made. She's made herself in appearance look so different, thinking she's this kind of upper-class woman. And with the way she talks and all that. And I think it's probably the same with Tina because we know that we know later on Ben and, and Bill talk about their childhoods. We know that their childhoods weren't very um, easy. They had like, you know, quite money struggles within the families. And so they're not from money. Tina's married into it or at least married into married to a man who has developed, has created a, a business for himself and a, well, a, a successful job. So she's kind of 
bringing that kind of upper class persona upon herself rather than being born into it. Well, aren't a lot of Bill's problems in life that and Ben's that they're working so much and their their lives are so hectic and busy and uh, Tina doesn't work because her husband's got a job and there's enough money coming in and she can afford to put around the house and be a housewife. Uh, Bill can't. Bill goes to work and she even makes that point, doesn't she? You know, um, sorry if I'm jumping ahead, but she makes that point when um, Tina says, you know, women shouldn't work. You know, a woman's place is in the household. And Bill says, well, I can't afford to do what you do. I've got to go out and work. I've not paraphrased that there. I know I've said it a bit differently, but, you know, and, 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 and a lot of Bill's stresses in life are down to the fact that she has got to juggle a job and being a mum. That's it. And I think what's great about this episode is that in a way, maybe again, I'm probably reading too much into this, but I think with Andrew Marshall and the way he's built the world of the porters and built Bill's character as someone who's very different kind of sitcom mother to others, in a way that he's comparing Bill and Ben's life and household and culture to that of Tina and Brian as being so opposite. And Tina and Brian almost represent that kind of 1950s, almost like an American family sitcom where she's wearing these frilly aprons and they, and she's kind of... Margo and Jerry. Margo and... Yes, very, very true. Margo and Jerry. And, you know, that there's so much here that they're, very, they're more like old-fashioned. So like Brian, it means instantly I don't like him. He says, you know, I'm sure the girls would like to be left to it and as him and Ben go down to the pub. And Bill is brilliant in her humor when she says, Oh no, I believe testosterone explodes on contact with saucepans. You know, she really wants to bring him down a, a peg or two. And, and Tina has that laugh where she kind of giggles, but doesn't really get Bill's humor, her sarcasm yeah. at all. It feels like she's again, Bill feels like she's on just a totally different level to everybody intellectually. Yeah. You know, she's, she's, she's got the quick remark that often goes over everybody else's head. You know, yeah. and, 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 and you're just thinking, you, you just think good on you, Bill, for saying that, because that's what I'm thinking too. I wrote a bit down uh, when he said, um, we don't want men in the kitchen. That's what uh, Tina says yeah. to oh, yes. Bill. And then Bill's like, you just look and thinking that's outrageous uh, yeah. you, you, because you've invested already in Bill. She's such a likable character. You've invested in it. You're on her side. So even if you were a misogynist, I would argue any misogynist watching that show would be on her side still because you like her. You know, you, you, like you can't her. help it. And you kind of, you see in the first episode, her, her, her work life and then in the second episode, her home life. And it's just always stressful. Mm-hmm. And to go to a household where it's so different and she feels like she's not going to be respected for what what she needs to do in life. It's not the fact that she necessarily, well, she wants to work. We know that she does like work. I think she's got a good work ethic, but she says she needs it. And one scene I love is when Tina's obsessed with Princess Diana. She's almost got like a shrine to, walk to Diana with pictures at various places. And when Bill points to the calendar, with the monkey posing in a seductive manner, said, oh, what's she doing in this one? Again, Tina shows that sort of giggle where she doesn't really understand what doesn't get Bill's humour. We get, am I allowed to reference future episode? Go ahead, yeah. Yeah, because you get it, the episode where um, they're doing, Bill and um, Rona are doing the catering 
and Tina comes to help out. You, I feel really sorry for her in that episode because I get the vibe that maybe Tina doesn't have a friendship like what Bill has with Rona. That maybe, well, it's very clear in this episode, if you were a child, who, which household would you want to be a child in? Oh, the Porters. Exactly, because it doesn't seem very fun in Tina's household, does it? No. So not only does her family life seem, yeah, she's got money and she's got the ease of not having to go to work. She's got time to do a Princess Diana memorial on her. Uh, you know, a tribute where she died then, aren't she? But collect pictures of Princess Diana and cut them out. I mean, that's a luxury to Bill, isn't it? She's so busy. When's Bill going to have time to do something like that? Not that she'd want to. But also, later on, you get the feeling that Tina's very lonely and the perfection is superficial. Definitely. Later on, she does say that she admires Bill for what she does and that she doesn't feel like she really has done everything she wanted to do in her life. And I think what's great about this episode, it really does establish how in the beginning they are so opposite and how Tina does see herself as a cut above Bill because she thinks that, you know, the women should be staying at home and the men go to work and thinks that her marriage is perfect and they're doing it the right way. But upon realising what actually later on it's all a facade, as, as social media shows, people always put themselves up being happier than they actually are. I'm probably the wrong person to, this is starting to turn into like a big feminism, you know, thing. I'm probably the wrong person to be saying about this considering I'm a man, but I know women, so I, I can hazard a guess. The, the, it's a good, a good example of the different pressures that women face, isn't it? Because you've got three women now. We've added another, we had Rona and Bill. We were talking about Bill, uh, Rona before, weren't we? So Rona, Bill, and now Tina. Three women with three very different, lives you know and 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 reacting very differently to the pressures that they're under so rona she's 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 living the rock and roll life isn't she you know that she's sleeping around she's got great sex life you know free and single no commitments or ties bill is mum working loads of pressure stress juggling all these plates tina traditional just Everything's sorted for her, no stresses, conventional stresses, but she will have real stresses, won't she? Her stresses are different because she hasn't got that friendship. She hasn't got that lively family life, you know, that stimulating. And, you know, as much as there's arguing in the Porter's household, they're, they're happy, aren't they? You know, they're happy and it's, t- and it's, and it, it's normal. But the, there's three women here with very different lives dealing with feminism in a different way. What's interesting is that Rona and Bill are supportive of each other. So you never get the feeling that Bill looks down on Rona. And you never no. get the feeling that Rona looks down on Bill. And it, again, it links to the, that they need each other and that they're both getting something from each other's situation. Bill wouldn't be able to call on Rona if Rona had children and her own responsibilities. No. Bill gets her friend to help her out because because Rona doesn't have responsibilities and Rona helps out because she doesn't have responsibilities and she secretly maybe an an element of her wants to have that so them two work in sync whereas uh Tina is just going right against the grain she's saying what you're doing is wrong you should be you shouldn't be working a woman's place is in the kitchen so she's going, she, she's seeing these other, this woman who is doing things very differently to her. And she's got a problem with that. Um, and, and I wonder what she'd say to Rona 
if she found out what Rona was doing? Because I don't think she'd be very approving of that either. There's one bit in the Millennium Experience, the very last episode, when Tina appears um, to celebrate the new Millennium with the family and she sees Rona and says, oh, hello, Rona, not in bed yet. Right. Yeah, she does, I think, and then Bet says a few things to Rona that's very um, scornful, should I say. Yeah, I completely agree with the feminism analogy because I I like reading books about TV shows and, and how they are, how they reflect societal changes and the way it reflects real people and i think with 2.4 children again one of the reasons it's underrated is because there are a lot of progressive elements to this as you say in just two episodes there's three female characters who are very very different Mm. and show a range of, of women characters i can't see them there's not many shows since then that you can say have that mix and ray even in just a couple and a whole series of like 50 episodes no. So it really was progressive for 1991. And again, for people who think it's just a cosy sitcom and predictable, it's really not. And what I love about the scene that when they talk about the disagreement between their lives, you go to the pub and there's Brian and Ben having a drink. And Brian's really patronizing Ben when he asks, you know, where does Bill keep his testicles in a handbag upon request? And it says, you know, you know I've had it sorted out with your sister. What I say goes, no arguments and then ben's like well bill's not like that because he knows that he would crumble without her that he really she 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 keeps the family going and it's another good example of that would have been an opportunity in a lesser sitcom for ben to have been like oh i know tell me about it and trying to pretend to be but actually he's just honest he's like no it's not like that and it's nice that he's he, he is so he respects bill doesn't he i think they have as you say they need each other and they've got so like bill's quite i don't say she's stiff up a lip but she's definitely more sort of grown up and responsible whereas ben's childish side there are times in the series where you see that comes out in her and you can see why they like each other because he has got that loving lovable clown personality he's, he's very homer simpson isn't he yes tom said that in the last episode um when we actually the pack he said he turns into homer simpson he has got that very non-traditional lovable personality that's rare for male characters very rare played very well as well you know again that character could have gone very differently with a different actor yeah he was he brilliant in that part and later and i think he gets a lot of really good material to play with later on i think i always for a while thought series one was where ben's not really that well developed but actually he is better developed in the sense that he's showing more sides to him then you get in others, I say in lesser sitcoms, you know, Robert Lindsay's character, he just plays the same thing episode after episode. There's not really a lot he gets to do. And let's let I say let stuff for Ben is incredible. And when Bill really loses it in the kitchen, they then learn that what was in David's lunchbox was a rat they takes to the house and then Bill storms out. And what I love about it is that Tina's hit David and Bill's angry with her but she threatens to kill him because of what he's done. It's like saying, you can't hit my child, but I'll, I can kill him, but you can't. Yeah. And that's kind of her standard for other people, but not letting David get away with it like some parents would do. She's and this a normal leads... mum, isn't she? Yeah, she's brilliant. She's so kind of funny and has her standards, but yeah, she, she, she's really well-rounded as a, as a person and as a parent. And so when she takes... So Bill takes David into the van and she says, you know, who the hell does she think she is hitting a child like that? She says, when I get home, I'm going to kill you. And she keeps saying to her mum, and she's just not listening. 
and she's driving along the road and then he reminds her that she can't drive but the thing about bill is that she's so confident in what she does she just drives normally but it's only when she realizes she doesn't that she starts jolting and and lose control and she nearly avoids some collisions and doesn't know how to stop it's my one of my favorite bits in the whole uh, eight series run is that bit where she she's like what am i doing i can't even drive you know that realization because it's so unexpected and it's just i when i watched it back i laughed physically it was like belly laughing at that bit i thought yeah. it was so funny um and again you can you can emphasize you can um relate to her she was that angry that all reality just left her and she just was like get in that car and then when she realizes like snap back in the room what's going on lovely it was a lovely it's a lovely moment lovely moment 100 percent. now i know you're not keen on the um biker no i'm not this the next bit is where it really just changes the tone quite a bit so she sees him riding his bike behind her in the side mirror and he telepathically instructs her how to stop the car and it's this is the moment where i mean i i like this moment because i think if the show was just all sort of real things happening it would have just been for me it would have just been like any other sitcom but the fact that this goes from reality to an almost supernatural occurrence where he's talking to her. I just, I don't know. I like it. I like that, that, that switch. The first time I watched it as an adult, I I didn't mind it as much because I wondered where it was going. Now I know where it's going. I just don't, I don't like it. Are we allowed allowed to, or not? We don't want to spoil it, do we? I think I've already spoiled it before, but. Right. Okay. So. Yes, it's not well developed. No, it's like it was made up as it was went along. Yeah, I think. Well, I have a theory that I've put forward to someone previously, and I'm going to Go suggest it now. He's considered. Some people consider him an, a guardian angel, and uh, he's called yeah. Angelo. And in Young at Heart, the last episode of series one, he has, and I think he has Angel on the back of his jacket. I think it's Bill's dad as a guardian angel. Now, I'll sit up, now although he never comes back into it after series two, because I know that David nearly dies at the end of the second series, and there's a bit where Angelo appears when David's in limbo. Again, would you ever see something like that in my family? And then he doesn't appear again, but then in series three, when Bill has that recurring nightmare about someone in the tunnel saying, don't go, Maya, that it's clearly him but then later in the series how many times does bill or the episode or should i say the episode build around bill's dreams and how often do bill's dreams reflect her life quite often and exactly and what about the episode you know the episode with the chain letters Hmm. there's that alien voice at the beginning that's sort of suggesting that they need to find a subject to observe there's something otherworldly going above the show and i feel as though it's definitely guardian angel but maybe it's bill's dad it's the lack of consistency in it though that irritates me you know that that it's it's the guardian it's the motorbiker in one and two then it's the don't go in the tunnel in series three and none of them link yes we can speculate that they link but none of them 
physic, you know, nuts and bolts linked to the, and none yeah. of them play out fully. You know, when you're watching the first, you know, the episode where she sees the newspaper that he's died. Yeah. You're then expecting some sort of episode where, I don't know, she goes to visit him and meets his family and then there's some reason behind it. Or, you know, she visits, goes to see a vicar and the vicar, it becomes very clear that it's her guardian angel. That doesn't come out from it. So there's no real payoff. I don't feel like, I feel when I watch back now, it's like wasted scenes because the payoff for me isn't worth it. Yeah, I, I, I can understand that. And a few people say have got mixed feelings about it. So we get to so the episode ends in the living room and it's, it's a great little scene between David and Bill when she's sort of, he's laughing and she says, I don't see anything funny. And he's really honest how he says he's not sorry. And I think what I like about this is that Bill says, I'm not going to shout at you. And it's the typical thing that parents, you kind of think they're going to have a go at you about something. And actually, it's, it's sometimes more effective to actually just say to a child, you know, well, she doesn't say I'm disappointed in you, but, but not screaming is making them, it's treating them more like an adult and making them more aware of the actions they've done, the actions they've committed. Yeah, definitely. Again, it's it's just another good example of how Bill could easily become the nagging mum, but yeah. she isn't. She's she. I feel like Andrew Marshall. I know we've just been criticising the thing of the angel and the don't go in the tunnel um, as an element of doesn't work in this year. He got the. So I think he got some little things wrong. It might not have been his fault. It might have been the producers. It might have been the BBC. Who knows? Um, his intentions might have been good uh, with it. I'm sure they were. But the thing he definitely gets right is he's writing for the family mem- family members, Bill and Ben in particular. But Bill, the way that she he, she always comes on the right side of never being the overbearing nagging mum. Yeah, she she does not everything. Once, not does once. everything correctly. Yeah, she she's a good parent, but she's she's real. And she's human, and she never—you never ever feel like, oh, just give it a break, woman. Stop nagging, stop whinging. You're whinging. Why? Yeah. Can you give them a break? Can you be nice, please? She never crosses that line, never. Yeah, and this scene de- develops that well because, in a way, she she doesn't shout at him, but she does give him the bucket to go and clean up. Yeah. So she is punishing him, but she's just not going to scream at him. Just in a realistic way. Exactly, and I think the scene again, we have that bit where you show a hint of David and Ben being very similar because David says in the beginning, you know, I'm not sorry. It was worth it to see the look on her face. So when Ben comes home, he repeats those words to Bill because she just finds it funny. And it's that thing where if you as a parent show your kids that what they've done is funny, they're not going to learn. But she does it privately when David's gone back upstairs to clean up. And so she's she doesn't really like Tina. So she thought it was worth it. And yeah, she's just got a very well-rounded personality. And she's also she's been to Tina's and she's seen what the older side is like. Yeah. It's a reinforcement really of... That yeah, she's got it hard. She's juggling all these plates, plates. Sorry, but it's better than the alternative, isn't it? Money doesn't always get you happiness. Exactly. And the final moment of the episode, she sort of flirts with Ben, asking if he's got the old leather jacket, and suggests that they're finally going to get the the bit of time together that she wanted the night before. But what I do find a bit strange, she says at one point, David's going to be busy for a while. I'm thinking, yeah, he'll be even if he's in the kitchen or even in the cellar. You probably still hear them. <laughs> it's quite awkward. gross, that isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Not something that you would want to think happens, but it's 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 just a bit of fun. It's a sitcom. We don't have to Dally. worry too much. And then, but then Ben finds a paper with a number on it, 
um, which Bill quickly says it was something that David was playing with. Ben goes upstairs and the final shot is Bill looking at the paper because she thinks it's from the biker and that ends the episode. And she's again frustrating because as a viewer in 1991, uh, I'd have been watching that thinking, oh, what, what is it? You know, it's like the soap opera element to the show, isn't it? And when yeah. you know the payoff, you're like, okay. Yeah. What epi- What in in the case of the things that we've talked about that you enjoyed, like the um, the relationship comedy bits, the Tina scenes, and obviously going against the scenes with the biker. Out of ten, which what would you give this episode? I think for a second episode of a sitcom, it's very strong. Um. I don't think no, I'm not going to give it a ten or a nine or an eight. I'd give it a seven. Yeah, I think it's very. But bearing in mind it's the second episode of a sitcom, I think that's a really good written. Yeah, for me, I'm, I gave the first one seven. I like this more, so I'm going to give it eight and a half because I feel like you say it's a very good second episode. I think it's a it's a better a first episode. I think the first series every episode is almost like a first episode in that it's the mm-hmm. first time you see them together. You see um, Liz Smith in two episodes from now. And it's not a show you can judge based on one episode. And I've checked the ratings and the first episode was watched by 8 million viewers, which in 91 was quite low. But then the second episode actually jumped up to 9 million. So a million more people watched it. Maybe it was word of mouth of the first episode or maybe just more people were watching TV. But the second episode is a really good introduction to the series as well. I mean, Only Fools and Horses was getting around about that in its first series, I think. Yeah, so, some shows yeah. just take time. Yeah, for a first series, you know, but back then they used to give things a go as well, you know, so... Uh, and it's a good thing they did. Yeah, definitely, yeah, 100%. So, sitcom, Stephen, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've thoroughly enjoyed this talk. It's it's really great to speak to someone who gets the show like I do in that it's not just a sitcom it's actually got a lot of societal sort of messages without being preachy and I'm really looking forward to having you on the show again oh brilliant thank you for having me I've enjoyed it so where can people find you sitcom Stephen I'm on Twitter I should know my hashtag shouldn't I my um at is that what you call it I've only got 40 followers should I have you got my at or my hashtag what do I read out your, ha- your, your username is at sitcom Stephen. And it's Stephen with a PH, as you can see on this screen. Yes. Give me a follow. Um, I'm going to try and stick to sitcoms and just tweet about sa- the odd bit of sci-fi might flutter in there. Um, but yeah, thank you for having me. Oh, thank you very much, Stephen. And next week, we'll be reviewing the episode When the Going Gets Tough, the Tough Goes Shopping. Before I close off today i just want to send a message out to tom who was on the show last week reviewing leader of the pack um sadly tom lost his auntie just after the recording of that podcast he's been an amazing help with this podcast he's been very helpful because of his experience doing the one foot in the podcast so this is for you tom and for your aunties this is dedicated to you both thank you everyone for listening and take care